0: Well, dear brothers and sisters, we arrived today at Lord's Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And again, this will get us in earnest now into the Ten Commandments. And this begins with question 92. And because the answer to this question is the full Ten Commandments, which we've already read responsibly today, I've not provided that in your liturgy. So just know that with question 92, the question is, what is God's law? And the answer is the Ten Commandments. Okay, That's the summary of God's law. Let's now read question and answers 93 through 95 responsively. How are these commandments divided? Into two tables. The first has four commandments teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments teaching us what we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayers to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, and look to God for every good thing humbly and patiently and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts, in place of, or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have appointed our mediator and Savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness. To the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and edification of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. All this we pray through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. There are many who hear the term Ten Commandments and are immediately turned off. Because all they can think about is rules and condemnation. Or maybe they think about the ugly battles uh, uh, from town to town about whether the Ten Commandments ought to be set up in statue form outside of our courthouses. People think all kinds of things when they think about the law of, of the Lord and of the commandments of the Lord. What comes to your mind when you think of these commandments? Psalm 19 gives us that ideal response. For when we think about the law of the Lord and the commandments of the Lord. The psalmist says in verse 10 of that psalm that the commandments of the Lord are to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. That's how we are to respond to God's law and his commandments. Now, for the last couple of weeks in in this catechism series, because of, of the things that we've looked at, we now know that the Holy Spirit is renewing us. We have been justified on the basis of Christ's blood, and we are being renewed inwardly by the Holy Spirit to live out our conversion to God. And this means we obey His law. And we learn over time to treat it as though it is as sweet as honeycomb. And, and more valuable than much fine gold. And we begin more and more to do what it says. Today, we begin to look at his law in a more detailed way, specifically the first commandment. Now, what is the law? What is the law? That's our first point this morning, is to explore what the law actually is. When we speak about God's law, we could be meaning several different things depending on the passage of Scripture that we are in. Uh, today we are speaking about God's law, specifically as it is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Um, question 92 teaches us that that is the main thing that we're focusing on when, when it comes to sanctification, conversion, and the Christian life. Okay, the Ten Commandments. Now, are there other commandments? Of course there are. There's many commandments in both the Old and the New Testaments that uh, it is incumbent upon Christians to obey. But these ten briefly show us the main categories that the many different individual commandments can be placed under. So within this brief list of Ten Commandments are comprehended the full moral standard of God. In, again, in brief and summarized form. Scripture gives us the Ten Commandments in two different places. Exodus 20, that's when the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. And then again, in Deuteronomy 5, in the plains of Moab, a full generation later before they're about to walk into the promised land. They are given and preached again by Moses. But there are many other passages all throughout Scripture that repeat these commandments, that expand, that apply them to particular situations, overall that interpret these commandments. So that, once again, as we speak in summary fashion about these ten, we recognize that they go very deep. And that it is not, we're not saying that there's only these ten commandments in Holy Scripture. We'll see this as we move along in this series in the Ten Commandments in the weeks to come. So that, here's what we're talking about when we are talking about the law of God. We are talking about God's will for our lives. What does God require of you? What pleases Him? What does he want you to do and not to do? That's what the law of God is speaking to us about. If you want to know not just what pleases the Lord, but also what it looks like to be converted, what does it look like to live a life that is truly converted to God, a life of repentance, a spirit-filled life, it looks like obedience to God's commandments. And our Lord Jesus Christ, has made it even easier to remember these commandments by summarizing them even further for Christians to remember. He says that the Ten Commandments can be brought down even to two. Love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. As we say pretty much every other week, that's Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You must love God, you must love your neighbor. And generally speaking, the Ten Commandments are divided into those two tables. First four being our duties to God and the last six being our duties to our fellow man and woman. Secondly, we look uh, now specifically at the first commandment. What does it look like to love God? If that's what the first table of the commandments is all about, our love and our duties toward God, what does it look like to love God? The first commandment tells us chiefly, you shall have no other gods before me. If you claim to love God, then you will put to death foreign gods and idols. Sounds simple enough if you do not seem to be dabbling in other religions. If you're not up to sorcery in your garage, then sometimes we can let ourselves off the hook and say, well, then I'm good to go on commandment number one. Uh, I don't don't worship Allah. I'm not going to a Buddhist temple. I'm not uh, dealing with, with runes and sorcery and things like that. I'm all good. But the commandment is far more reaching than that. Question and answer 94 gives us this negative list. It says that having no other gods means staying clear of all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, prayers to saints, or other creatures. Now each of these can be found and are condemned in scripture. But why do these other things amount to having another god other than the one true living god? Why does it amount to idolatry to dabble in sorcery or to pray to saints or other creatures and, and superstition and so forth. Why is that actually bowing down to other gods? Isn't superstition actually... It's a side thing, isn't it? Maybe it's related to idolatry, but we tend to categorize it kind of... It's an ancillary, secondary thing. Uh, we convince ourselves that there's no real worship that's being offered to some other god. Because again, it's just a side thing. It's a side, it's religious side gig. I'm not bowing down to Allah or any other known God. And therefore, what I'm up to, whatever happens to be, it's not really idolatry. Right? Question and answer 95 gives us great clarity on this. It shows us that idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God. Having or inventing something that you have as a means of trusting in it either instead of God or alongside of God. Our scripture readings that we've looked at in this service have made this clear. There is outright idolatry that must be handled. We saw that in Genesis 35. Jacob makes his whole family get rid of their household gods. These are figurines more, more of an ancient pagan, the idea that we have with ancient pagan peoples. Although it's not as though these kinds of figurines are gone from the world. So there's a kind of outright idolatry, I- idolatrous figurines, that's pretty obvious. But in Jeremiah 17, the prophet condemns not only physical idols like the Canaanite Asherim poles that popped up all over uh, the, the nation of Israel, or they wouldn't take them down, Those and then also pagan altars. That's in verse 2 of Jeremiah 17. He calls those things out by name, but also the prophet condemns trust that is placed in someone other than God. And he puts these things together. Judah is condemned, Israel is condemned for having these Asherim poles, the, the actual outright idolatrous figurines, and they're condemned in the same breath for trusting in someone who is not God. Or in some thing that is not God. He says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. To put your, your your trust and your hope in some created thing other than God, no matter what it is, is to commit the sin of idolatry. So let's say that you do indeed believe in God alone. Uh, but sometimes when you pray, it gives you some comfort to pray to a loved one who has departed. Uh, do you, you picture them as being in heaven and, you know, they're there. Jesus is there. I'm going to talk to my dead loved one. Um, it gives you a sense of solace and comfort. You know? um, but you see, you're doing something that is mixing your trust with the Lord and something else. Because our trust must be that it is the Lord God alone who hears our prayers through Jesus Christ. There is no other mediator or advocate. And when some uh, a, a departed loved one goes to heaven, they are in heaven. They've not been suddenly granted superpowers to hear the prayers of those who are speaking to them. You do not need a go-between uh, in any sense, whether it is uh, more official prayers and the cult of the saints... Or you are simply speaking to a loved one, which is surprisingly rampant in evangelical circles. The idea that your dead loved one now becomes angelic or a spirit that hears you when you pray. But you see, you don't trust in a dead loved one. They cannot save you. They cannot bring your prayers to God. They can't bring your prayers to to the altar of God. It is Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit alone who does this. And uh, the point that I'm trying to make here is that we slip into idolatrous ways of thinking because we are given to superstition. And what I've just described here is actually a superstitious uh, practice. It's not uh, biblical worship or biblical prayer. Uh, so perhaps indeed you mostly trust in God, but prayers to anything or anyone else is actually a superstitious act of trust in something that is other than god. And I'm you know, we could go on and on about this. Lots of examples. Talismans, talismans. I don't know what the plural would be for that. A lucky rabbits foot or something that you you know, a certain a certain um, habit that you have that you you can't do something unless you've gone through these steps. It's become almost religious for you. You feel like something bad will happen if you don't go through a particular ritual. These are you know, we are human beings that are given to superstition. And we are doing these things because our trust is Always, never fully in God alone. So we must, you know, in learning to obey the first commandment, we must turn our whole selves to God, the triune God of holy scripture and him alone. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength is all of yourself to God and not to other things, whether... Uh, created, or someone who has departed, or a, 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 something that you rub in your hands, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, we must put to death superstitious rites, prayers to saints or other creatures, and the like. That's the first commandment, and our catechism helps us to recognize the, the, uh, how prevalent idolatry actually is in the hearts of sinners. Now then, uh, lastly, we look at how Christ transforms Our obedience to this commandment. How does Christ transform our obedience to this commandment? As with any commandment, we must always remember that our Lord Jesus Christ has obeyed it perfectly. And He alone has obeyed it perfectly. And by this obedience, which He has rendered to God, He has secured for us a perfect obedience and righteousness. You must be perfect. You must be perfect. And so you need someone else's perfection. You need someone else's obedience. And it is Jesus Christ's obedience to this and all other laws which becomes yours by faith alone. It is by faith in him. It is, as the Catechism says in question and answer 60, it is as if you had never sinned nor been a sinner. And as if you had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for you. That is, the, that is how God comprehends you as one who is now you, in union with Jesus Christ. You are as spotless, blemishless as Jesus Christ. You're as righteous as His Son. Which means that the sin of idolatry, which we constantly struggle with in our life of sanctification, is forgiven for the sake of Jesus Christ. How has Christ been obedient for you with regard to the first commandment? Our Lord Jesus never once allowed his heart to be led astray by other things. Never once. He never placed his trust in something other than God. And this this is important because Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who has taken on human flesh. And in this human nature, he refers to God the Father as his God and Father. God the Father is Jesus' God. God. Uh, Jesus himself refers to him as, My God, as he hung on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus declared in his resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 7, he comes out of the tomb and he says, I am ascending to my God. And it is this God that Jesus always perfectly trusted in. Always. The devil tempted our Lord to look away from God and to trust in all manner of things. Food or political power, even trust in the devil himself, as we saw in Matthew 4. What did Jesus say? Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Because to give in to these particular temptations would be to now trust in something that is not God. And Jesus never once faltered. In thought, word, and deed, always, personally, and perpetually, forever, he was always perfectly obedient to his God and Father. Uh, we read that uh, he entrusted himself. This is in First Peter. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, even when he was being persecuted, even when he was on trial in an unjust manner, and when he was crucified. Peter says that during all of that, Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Christ alone has obeyed this commandment. And that obedience is given to you by faith. So do not forget that you are united to this obedient Savior. The only true obedient Son. And since this same Son of God is renewing you and sanctifying you by His Spirit, you must put to death idolatry. whether you have begun to dabble in pagan practices which are skyrocketing in our day and age, uh, good old-fashioned classical versions of paganism are back, whether you're dabbling or you simply mix your trust between God and other things, you must trust in the one true God who has been revealed to you in the Scriptures and trust in Him alone. And not uh, with half-hearted worship, not with half-hearted worship and trust, but holy And fully. And we close from this last line from John's epistle. He is the true and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Glorious and merciful Father, we give you thanks for having established your covenant with believers and their children. For as you have told us, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. This promise you have not only signified and sealed by holy baptism, but daily prove by perfecting your praise through the mouths of children, and so putting to shame the wise and the understanding of this world. Continue to establish your saints in this faith throughout our lives, and so give us the grace to inwardly digest the food you have given to us, and to instruct our children in knowledge and in fear of the Lord until they have reached complete maturity. All of this we ask.